This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Well, today on the program, Liberals are splintering. How often have you heard about the defections and departures from the left end of the Liberal Party spectrum? Well, in fact, the major defections are taking place on the right side of the coalition parties. And the splintering, well, that's likely to have a legislative impact. Remember, in 2016, nearly a million Conservatives could not stomach Malcolm Turnbull, so they voted for alternative parties. Indeed, many lifelong Liberals even preferenced Labor, and that nearly cost the coalition office after being in power for only one term. And one of the major battlegrounds in the upcoming New South Wales state election will be that for the upper house. After March 23, minor parties on the right, they're likely to hold the balance of power. So as the Liberal National Coalition increasingly splinters, what's the objective of One Nation, the Liberal Democrats and the Australian Conservatives? Mark Latham is One Nation candidate for the New South Wales Upper House. He's also a former federal Labor leader. Great to have you back on Between the Lines, Mark. Thanks very much, Tom. Corey Bernardi is leader of the Australian Conservatives and a senator. He's a former Liberal. Hi there, Corey. Hi, Tom. How are you? Very good. And David Limbrick is the newly elected Liberal Democratic Party member in the Victorian Legislative Council. Welcome to the program, David. Hi, Tom. Nice to be here. Now, let's start with how each of you got to where you are now, politically and philosophically. Mark, you're a former federal Labor leader throughout the 2004 election campaign. You were the darling of the Metropolitan Sophisticates. (laughs) A few years ago, you joined the LDP. Now you're a One Nation candidate for the New South Wales Upper House. How do you account for your ideological odyssey? Well, there are many issues, Tom, but I think generally I would think that... um I've stayed pretty well uh, stable in terms of my ideological position. I joined the Labor Party 40 years ago because I had a great belief in meritocracy, that if we provide good social and economic opportunities for people and uh, pick jobs, promotions, roles in society based on merit, we could have the good society. That would be a genuine social democratic objective. And I still believe in that today, 40 years later. Mm. Uh, meritocracy, whereas unfortunately Labor and other left-of-centre parties have moved to a system of identity politics, which instead of judging each individual on their merit, their work ethic, their community contribution, their innate quality as an individual, they're judging them on race, gender and sexuality. And these categories, I believe, are a betrayal of the ideals that uh, people like Whitlam and Hawke set for the Labor Party. They don't achieve social uh, democracy and social justice. Uh, It's really my opposition to identity politics that has um, seen me uh, arrive in one nation, but it's more that Labor has moved to the left. They're very much a light green party, and as long as they junk meritocracy and embrace identity politics... Uh, They won't have my support, and I don't think they'll achieve their objectives. So it's a bit like what Ronald Reagan said when he left the Democrats and joined the Republicans. He said, I didn't leave my party. My party left me. Well, to some extent, but I think most people would acknowledge over the past decade in particular, politics has changed fundamentally. There's been a collapse in the quality of leadership uh, since the defeat of the Howard government uh, 12 years ago. The embrace of identity issues uh, has led to a transformation. I know this is an overseas example, but who would have thought in 
the news we have this week that um, a significant number of MPs would be leaving the British Labor Party mm, mm. on the grounds of racism and anti-Semitism. Mm. Extraordinary. And, and it just shows you the impact of identity politics is in fact a new form of racism practiced by the left. And um, for me, that's abhorrent to the beliefs I had decades ago and the beliefs I still hold today. Now, Corey Bernardi, you, of course, were, were a leading uh, conservative voice in the Liberal Party room, both in opposition and government. And yet you came to believe, like indeed many Liberals and Conservatives, that Malcolm Turnbull was not, in Margaret Thatcher's parlance, one of us. Uh, you think about safe schools, Section 18C, the superannuation changes, same-sex marriage, climate, energy policy, all that. So Turnbull was clearly out of kilter with Conservatives, irreparably so, and there was no point in prolonging the agony. That's why they got rid of him. But question, now that Turnbull has left the party room in Parliament, why don't you, Corey, return to the Liberal Party? Uh, Tom, I left the Liberal Party not because of Malcolm Turnbull, but because of what the party has become. And I realised that uh, it had lost its moral compass, it had lost its anchor, and my odyssey hasn't uh, been as, as great as Mark's, but I haven't moved a jot or a tittle in in my views about how the world should function and the role of government. I believe that you know taxes should be lower and government should be limited. I think that civil society is really important and free enterprise is worth fostering and developing. And I realised that when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister and he advocated in the party room that he we should be putting taxes up, that um, the party had probably lost a little bit of its under, underlying or underpinning ethos. Uh, when there were movements within the party room to have big spending social welfare programs using borrowed money, when they funded safe schools, and I could keep going on and on and on, I realised that it wasn't about the leadership so much. It was about what the party itself had become. It ceased to stand for the things that it, it previously had. And David Limbrick, you're new to representative politics. Uh, you recently were elected to the Victorian Legislative Council. What's your ideological pedigree? Our party and, and myself, we'd be called a libertarian or classical liberal party. And so we believe that people should be free to act uh, free from the interference of government as long as they're not harming other people. And so... I've always had this belief in you know, personal freedom, but since around 2000, I've noticed, and, and I sort of echo a lot of the sentiments of, of Mark and Corey, that governments have been getting larger and more dangerous, interfering with the economy, um, watching over people's lives. We've seen a lot more things like, you know, with the metadata and things like this, where they're treating our citizens as if they're all potential suspects. And, you know, as I said in my inaugural speech, you know, you don't have to look at much history to see the danger of, of government getting out of control. And so I, I believe that there's a market for people who believe in freedom and, and limited government. Okay. Now, there seems to be a bit of overlap here. You're all broadly market-oriented, yet, Mark, One Nation, you know, has been described as protectionist, uh, anti-foreign investment, and even agrarian socialist. How would you reconcile these positions with your long-standing support for a market economy? Well, parties change and evolve over time, and One Nation today has uh, leading market-based advocates uh, like Malcolm Roberts heading up the Senate ticket in Queensland, myself heading up the state ticket in New South Wales. And if you look at our major policy in terms of impact on the economy, it is for governments to do less, to meddle less in the energy market. Our policy in New South Wales is to abolish the $85 um, uh, electricity tax, uh, to end 
the gross subsidy of renewables, stop picking winners, stop trying to manipulate the energy market, because all those practices have resulted in higher prices and less energy security. They've been a disaster. And, um, you know, again, our policy in energy is deregulation, uh, abandon the prohibition on nuclear power and even uranium mining in New South Wales. So they are very much policies that open up the energy market for more sources of power generation, which provides energy security, helps to drive down prices in the medium term. Uh, most of the One Nation initiatives you're talking about are in the past or they are nation-building policies uh, in Queensland, where, topical again, one of the things the party's interested in is water capture. Uh, in Queensland to, to, to help with uh, alleviating drought and obviously doing something about all the water that's been wasted in the in the terrible floods they've had in North Queensland in recent times. So I think One Nation has changed in that regard and I'm entirely comfortable, particularly with the New South Wales policies we're advocating for significant deregulation and freeing up uh, energy market. And Corey Bernardi, how would you distinguish the Australian Conservatives from, say, the Liberal Party on economics? Well, I, I want to fully embrace what Mark has just said, uh, because the abandonment of uh, subsidies for renewables, the, uh, the allowance of nuclear energy and, and so forth, and let the market rip in the energy sector, for example, are part of our ethos and our policy position. Where I will differ is that Mark may hold these positions, but what One Nation has done federally is is poles apart from that, if I may say so. They are advocating for the government to build coal-fired power stations. I've, Malcolm Roberts voted for uh, emissions restrictions for lawnmowers and weed whackers and things, which opens the door to emissions restrictions for uh, motor vehicles and farm machinery and stuff like this. It, it, it goes on and on and on. It is about consistency in the application. I don't doubt that Mark believes in what he's, he's doing, but the problem is there isn't that consistent position and approach from one nation. Okay. Um, and so from, from my point of view, that's all I'm trying to do is, is to continually say, no, government should be not be interfering in, in markets um, in the main, and we need to make sure that taxpayers are getting good value for money. Okay, but all this takes place when we've seen a lot of polling evidence uh, in, in this country, Australia, certainly in the United States and even Britain. Uh, a majority of millennials, these are people born between 1982 and the late 1990s, they're embracing socialism, the cover of this week's Economist, the rise of the millennial socialist. David, how do you, and of course the LDP, when I've been to LDP events, I've seen a lot of young people, but how do you keep appealing to millennials when so many of them blame capitalism for things like high housing prices, education costs, and, and what some say, climate catastrophe? Well, I noticed that the survey didn't include Venezuelan millennials, so um, <laughs> it's, I, th I think it's rather rather biased survey. But um, look, uh, you know, if you take housing prices for example, and and I think that the the characterisation that this is the fault of capitalism is is totally wrong. If you look at housing, for example, we, when you buy a house, you've got stamp duty that inhibits people um, moving to more appropriate accommodation. It makes it more difficult for young people to, to buy a house. We've got massive planning controls. We've got land release. We've got all of these uh, government interference that it's making housing more expensive. And I think young people, millennials in particular, are very uh, 
you know, they can be very rational and open to these ideas when they say, well, is government maybe the problem here? And we're finding, you know, a lot of young people are attracted to libertarian ideas. They, they want to be able to think for themselves. And I think it's just more a matter of getting the message out there. My guests are Mark Latham, One Nation, Corey Bernardi, Australian Conservatives, and David Limbrick, LDP. We're talking about the splintering of the right. Let's move to identity politics, Mark Latham, because you mentioned it earlier. Why is it fracturing uh, the liberal conservative movement? And, and why do you think it's so dangerous? Well, I think the fracturing is, is fascinating in itself, that there is something of a crisis in traditional conservatism. Uh, the left have put not only identity politics, but postmodernism and the culture wars on the agenda. There is a basic split of ideology and approach on the question of nationalism, the Australia Day debate, the role of gender, quotas, climate change, energy policy, same-sex marriage, refugees, the list goes on and on. And I, I think the key um, point for conservative voters is they want people to fight uh, against the leftist takeover of institutions in these mm -hmm. uh, areas of the culture wars. And when they can't find a politician, a conservative who's willing to fight, well, they turn to outsiders like Donald Trump, as mm -hmm. they have in the United States. The whole Trump phenomenon was a product of finding someone who would fight tooth and nail mm -hmm. to drive the leftist takeover of institutions away. And I think that's why well, you've got this fundamental split down the middle of old conservative parties as they're going through a, a new ideological realignment. Inevitably, on these questions of social fairness and the divisiveness of identity politics, the failure of energy policy, uh, we've seen it in, 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 in recent times, the failure of uh, a borderless world. Well, this the Labor Green changes on, on to our border protection all policies. Of the, all yeah. of these things fail mm. in practice. Now, David, you, in, I think it was your maiden address in Parliament, you lament the rise uh, recently of authoritarians, and you say on both the left and the right attempting to declare sections of society as good or bad. This is the identity politics that Mark and I have just been talking about. Who yes. on the right do you have in mind? Okay, so if, if you look at uh, what's happened with uh, left identity politics, it's had the natural consequence and, and predictable, I think, that it, there's been a reaction to it. And if you look in the, in the US, you know, the rise of the, the alt-right movement, they're really just a, a mirror image of what you see on the authoritarian left with their identity politics. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a predictable outcome because you think, well, these people who are being accused of... Uh, being bad because they belong to a certain group, you know, they, they might be men or whatever, then they they react to it. And, and so I said in my inaugural speech that, um, you know, I reject identity politics outright because I think that it, it's a natural consequence that it causes this fragmentation of society and, and leads to social chaos in the end. We're ending up with, you know, groups being segregated from each other. And I just don't think it's a healthy thing. I think we need to focus much more on the individual. Yes. And, and you talk a lot about social policy differentiation. They're certainly evident when it comes to, say, cannabis legalisation. Just describe yes. the LDP position, David. Yeah, so um, since our party's founding in 2001, our policy on cannabis has been to uh, legalise it um, with few restrictions except for uh, restrictions on the sale to children, shouldn't be sold to children. But, um, you know... Like, this it used to be considered fairly radical, I suppose, but now it's not so much. We're already seeing this being legalised in many states in the US and in Canada, and 
you know, if you look at it in in the 2016-17 financial year in Victoria alone, there was 10,000 arrests uh, due just to cannabis. And so that's 10,000 police officers' time, 10,000 court cases, and 10,000 young people's lives potentially ruined with a criminal conviction. Um, I, I just don't think that this is a good use of taxpayer resources. And uh, and I don't want these uh, young people getting a criminal conviction for, you know, smoking a mm. joint or something like that and ending up on welfare and not being able to get a job. And, I mean, p- and, and what about pill testing? Because you've joined uh, some other minor parties on the left on this issue, correct? That's correct. And look, with pill testing, again, it's... it's um, it's a matter of, you know, I think the name is probably a bit unfortunate, really. I'd rather call it pill consultation or something like that, because really the value with uh, pill testing is that young people, they, they take these drugs, right? They, they take them and it, it doesn't matter. You can't arrest your way out of stopping children take these drugs. So pill testing is a way for young people before they take these drugs to sit down with a health expert and talk about it in, in serious in a serious and honest way. And for many young people, this is the first time that they've ever spoken to anyone about their drug-taking behaviour. And what happens is that they get uh, told that, you know, here is what we've discovered in your pills. And sometimes it's bad things in the pills that they weren't wasn't what they're expecting. And they throw it in the bin. Uh, sometimes uh, just talking to a medical pre- professional about the risks from taking these pills is enough to put the wind up these people and, and they'll put them in the bin as well. And even if they do go ahead and, and take the pills, well, at least they've... Uh, gotten some information about the possible risks, some possible strategies for dealing with those risks, and they'll be at much less harm. And when we, we've seen this introduced overseas, we've seen much lower levels of, of harm. And look, a lot of people as well are saying, oh, well, why should taxpayers be paying for this? Well, uh, no one's really asking for taxpayers to pay for it. They're really just asking for the government to get out of the way and let voluntary organisations run a trial so that they can see how it works. Let's look at how it actually works. Well, Corey, you just heard the LDP position on drugs. What's the conservative response? Well, I don't support pill testing. And um, the reason I, I regard myself as a conservative is because I want the maximum amount of freedom for people to do things, uh, to enjoy themselves and to uh, participate in civil society. But I'm also acutely aware that, you know, the lived human existence has demonstrated people are prone to excesses and there are areas where there need to be limits uh, placed upon things. Now, if if pills are illegal, uh, it is absolutely wrong for us to be testing drugs and then giving them back to someone to make a decision about what they should be doing with it in a voluntary capacity. And David makes a good point. This may be the first time someone's spoken to them about drugs. Well, rather than talking to them in schools about, you know, gender transitioning and deciding whether you're a boy or a girl at grade four or, or, you know, four years of age, why not sit them down and have a serious conversation about the dangers that drugs cause for people? People die from them, they get mental illness and the, the, the costs of drug addiction, drug treatment uh, in this country is astronomical. And um, just because you can't beat it or you don't think you can beat it doesn't mean you should give up and say, well, let's just test it and let you, you know, take your chances. Mark Latham. Well, the problem is that for the Liberal Democrats, it's actually an expansion of the role of government, which is contrary to what they're supposed to stand for, because under the current system, an individual takes one of these pills, a synthetic drug manufactured in someone's backyard garage, they take the individual risk about the contents of the, the pill and, and they have to live with the individual consequences of what they're doing. But if you've got government-authorised pill testing, you're transferring the risk onto the taxpayer. 
because the first time one of the pills is faulty and the analysis of it is wrong and the young person has detrimental impacts, government and the taxpayer are up for enormous amounts of money in compensation. So, no, so not, I, I find, I find this... Well, well, you were saying government would give permission for voluntary organisations. That's government-sanctioned pill testing and other people say they would be government medical officers testing these pills within 10 minutes of a person entering What's... a music-slash-drug festival. So, David Limbrick, is pill testing a burden on taxpayers? No, in fact, I think it removes burden on... There's already a burden on taxpayers with people taking these dodgy pills. You know, the, the, the ICU beds cost money. The, the uh, you know, the cor- I hate to say it, the coroner's reports cost money. All these things already cost money. So there's the organisations that want to do these trials, they're not government-run, they're not government-funded. They're, they're private organisations that want to want to do this. Overseas, when you see these organisations, they're actually paid for by the festivals themselves and it lowers their insurance premiums. So this is not... This is not like a government service. This is uh, people trying to reduce the harm from drugs that people are going to take anyway. If, if we can, if we can reduce the harm by giving people access to medical consultations and more information about the substances that they're taking, it will save lives and it will reduce the number of people that takes drugs. If we see overseas when the when the people have. Uh, had these consultations with pill testing, a lot of the times, as I've already said, they throw them in the bin. And so I think this is a very effective way of re- okay. reducing drug, well, this both is reducing a, this drug is, consumption. This is a good way yeah. to show there are some divisions after yes. all. David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats, he's in Melbourne. Mark Latham, the One Nation candidate for the New South Wales election in March, he's in Sydney with me. And Corey Bernardi, he's the leader of the Australian Conservatives. He's in our Parliament House studio in Canberra. And we're discussing the splintering of the right and the third-party alternatives to coalition parties. Uh, Mark, you and I, over the last few years, have been talking a lot about um, Donald Trump, and uh, it has to be acknowledged that uh, at various stages throughout 2016, you were one of the few people in this country who thought that Trump could win. Uh, But hasn't he just represented the sort of insurgency forces uh, that are dismantling established parties in Europe, that it's a populist backlash against... Uh, economic globalisation, porous borders and identity politics. Uh, If that's true, is Trump a role model for One Nation? Well, in large part, yes. A a popular backlash against identity politics and porous borders is very much justified. Uh, We had porous borders in Australia under the Rudd and Gillard governments and... 1,200 asylum seekers drowned, including young children. Go on. So how anyone could resurrect that type of uh, approach under the banner of social justice just defies any form of logic. People like Gough Whitlam would have said to me in the 1980s, don't take any notice of a person's skin colour or their gender or their sexuality. These things are superfluous to the true character of the individual. So why now so much focus on skin colour, gender and sexuality in the form of identity politics? And, you know, I reject the notion that populism somehow is a dirty word. If you're engaging the public and harnessing popular views against bad policy, that's a very good thing for our democracy. Yeah, Corey Bernardi, you, like me, you're a fan of Ronald Reagan, yet many American conservatives, such as the distinguished columnist George Will, they say that Trump is a repudiation of Reagan's core governing philosophy, small government, free trade and immigration. Is Trump an ally or a false prophet? Corey Bernardi. 
Trump is an ally in short. And if you get past the uh, the personality of Donald Trump and, and you know, the, the mocking that is made of him in the media, and you look at his agenda, it's very mainstream. Uh, what country doesn't want to secure their borders? Um, only, you know, leftist Europeans, and even they regret uh, at, at their leisure. Um, so that's what he wants to do. Uh, renegotiating trade deals is, I think, absolutely wise. I mean, these deals were entered into decades ago and uh, how do you know whether they're still working to your advantage or not? Should they be set and forget? No one in the commercial world does that. And we have been damaged by some of the deals that were done, a treaty, say, for example, on um, on uh, refugees back in the 50s. Uh, we're still bound by it. We should be revisiting all of these things ourselves. He wants to deregulate the economy, cut taxes. That's a very mainstream uh, agenda for, for a conservative. And he wants to rid... The country. What, of about, the what about, him, what about immigration, though? Because, I mean, Reagan was a big immigration guy. Trump wants to slash immigration. Well, he wants to make immigration work in the national interest for America. And, you know, mm. quite frankly, immigration in this country, for example, and in America, is not working to the betterment for ordinary people. Governments love big immigration policies because it props up the GDP and it makes the economy seem to grow. But it takes a negative step for many people that are uh, already struggling in the community. And yet libertarians, and libertarians in the United States, David, uh, generally speaking, are inclined towards free immigrations. Um, do you also support open borders? Uh, no, we don't support open borders. So we, we acknowledge the benefits that come from you know Im immigration, so the prosperity that it can cause, but we also acknowledge that uh, immigration needs to be controlled. So, no, we don't support open borders. Okay, now finally, Paul Kelly from The Australian, he's been on Between the Lines every so often, he all too often talks about the revolt of the liberal, better-off, progressive middle class on moral grounds, especially climate change. And Kelly sees this as a liberal weakness, that is the failure to fight the left on moral issues with moral language. And he says that every progressive campaign is based on morality, no matter how immoral it might be. Mark Latham, first to you, how do you fight your real ideological opponents on the left on moral grounds? Well, you need to fight hard against their takeover of institutions. I mean, we're sitting in one here at the ABC other than for you, Tom. So, you know, you need to be realistic about that. But you also need to highlight the shallowness of virtue signalling. If you're a woman as wealthy as Karen Phelps or Lisa Wilkinson or Peter Fitzsimons, you live in a big house with security, you don't live within cooey of, of, of refugee-type communities out in the western suburbs of Sydney, how do you prove your moral virtue to others? Your virtue signal. Um, about climate change, about refugee policy. And why are they doing it? Because, you know, to be filthy rich, of course, in the old days, they'd be described as greedy capitalist pigs. Well, they don't want that said about them at their swank dinner parties. So they have to have this moral dimension, which is totally shallow. They don't have windmills and big solar farms in the eastern suburbs or lower North Shore of Sydney. They don't live within Cooey of where the refugees live. They'll take a handful of these boat people uh, you know, every now and then, if they ran into one in the mm. main street of Double Bay, they'd be in a state of shock. They'd have a heart attack. So virtue signalling gets them off the hook. David Limbrick. From our point of view, it's it's more along the lines of, well, libertarian libertarianism is fundamentally a moral position. So we feel comfortable uh, looking at our philosophy and how we can uh, argue these points on a moral ground. And I think, you know, if you look, if you look at a lot of these uh, left uh, positions, they're, they're really about some elite group 
making a plan for the average person. So they're, they're trying to plan people's lives rather than let them plan it for themselves. And, uh, you know, fundamentally, that that's, that's not a moral position that should be supported. And we need to point that out to people. And I, I think that we have the, the philosophical foundation that we can do that. And Corey Bernardi, how do you fight your real ideological opponents on moral grounds? Let's not gild the lily. Morality has historically come from religious observance and, uh, you know, in Australia, uh, Judeo-Christian values and, and ethics. The left have sought systematically to dismantle that, to demonise and and uh, um, undermine anybody that want to uphold that in the public sphere whilst appropriating the language and presenting themselves as this, this, this new religion. And um, when people like me and Mark and David push back against it in our own ways, of course, we're the marginalised ones because the institutions are now fully captured by this leftist zeitgeist. And I, I, I think we've just got to keep pushing back. And ultimately, I think the younger people of Australia will recognise that the counterculture movement is worth supporting because the prevailing culture is doing them a disservice. Their, their job, their outcomes, their outlook for the country, whether it be in, um, in educational standards or opportunities, is far less than it was uh, a decade or so ago. And that's because of government and leftist uh, thinking. Very interesting discussion. Corey, Mark, David, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, thanks Corey and David. On. That was Corey Bernardi from the Australian Conservatives, Mark Latham from One Nation, and David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.